0: Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke 13 where we're at. Um, Settle in, get your notes ready. We're going to try to do the whole chapter today, which it's a big chunk to bite off, but it really fits. Uh, Jesus has been setting his face towards Jerusalem. And in that process, we see increasing hostilities with the Pharisees and the religious elite. And we see increasing crowds excited about what he's doing. And And all along the way, he keeps turning to his disciples and he's trying to teach his disciples how this thing goes, how this kingdom thing goes. And he's taught them about a need to fear God, to put God first, to pursue the kingdom, ignore the crowds and ignore the Pharisees. And both of these forces are all around them at at, at the time when the crowds are even so big they're pressing in on each other, right? There's this pressure that comes with the walk of faith. And then there's legalists that add their own kind of pressure to the whole situation. So this is the context in which we were there. And then we start in verse one. There were present at that season. This season would be the trip to Jerusalem. Some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them and said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All right, so this isn't really, Mandy had a hard time picking a Sunday school set of verses this week. Um, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. You guys know that? He warns more about perishing than he does about getting saved. And the sum total of Jesus, when you look at these things, he is not, he doesn't back off of these topics. And I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, just give it to me straight. Just tell me the truth. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to dress it up. Just kind of come straight at it. So the context of this is verse one, this situation where Pilate mixes the blood with sacrifices. Like we don't know what the situation is. It's not in any secular histories. Neither is the um, verse four event that happened. But we do know that Pilate was an absolute tyrant. We know like most Roman governors, the goal was absolute control, maximum peace and maximum tax revenue. And so, any leader of Rome, that they have to suck as much money as they can, with as much force as they can, from the people without them rebelling, and that was the game of the Roman Empire. It lasted eight hundred years. This balance between the people and the government, the government sucking as much as they possibly can, with the people not revolting, and that game hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, the, The the killing for the Romans was simply a political tool. We have to understand that too. The, the nature of Pilate mixing blood with sacrifices, whatever that is, we know that Pilate had a penchant for aggravating the Jewish people. He didn't like them. And he, act, and he did things that would aggravate them by killing people. So this idea that he would kill people on a feast day or maybe he... They're giving their sacrifices, then he kills a bunch of Jews and calls them sacrifices. Like, he doesn't care about the Jewish religion, so to him this is like, you guys are believing in a fantasy, what difference does it make? So it's not unlike Pilate to do something like this. Josephus reports that um, he did other things too. He moved imperial standards into the city of Jerusalem just to tick off the Jews like Roman banners started hanging around Jerusalem. The Jews would call those idols, so this made them extremely aggravated. A uh, Philo reports that he brought in a, a bunch of Roman shields and hung them in the palace in the manner of David back in the day. But they were Roman shields on which they would have Caesar is God printed on them. Right? So he did that too. Josephus also reports that he used temple funds to build a new aqueduct for Jerusalem. There was a mob over that one and he slaughtered the whole mob. Like he killed them all. So this is Pilate. This is the nature of Pilate. That scene, the reason why I list all those things is when we get to verse one, it's entirely, even though we don't have secondary historical sources of this particular event, that tells us two things. One, Pilate did this stuff all the time. This was just news cycle. It wasn't big enough news to actually make the record books. But it was also in his nature and from these other sources, we know that he absolutely did stuff like this. So the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled was a small incident in, in Pilate's rule. It was probably over a feast time. The feast sacrifices would have created streams of blood that would go down into the Kidron Valley. So if he's killing Jews and their blood goes into that same stream, this is probably what's going on there. So he just he could care less about their feasts. The question Jesus poses though and this is why they're asking this, is he says, and he's trying to clarify, do you think those Galileans that died were worse sinners than the ones that didn't die? Is there such a thing as a worse or a better sinner? Or are they suffering or did they get killed? Because there's somehow, there was a sin that happened and they're getting killed by Pilate was some kind of consequence for that sin. So in other words, and, and this is like, This is a horrible set of thinking that he's challenging here, but it's also something that we as adults need to address too. The idea that the victim of evil is somehow responsible for that evil that happened to them, right? And so we see this all the time. In the Old Testament, we do see that the nation suffers due to sin, but we don't see that with individuals. Individuals can get tested, they can get consequences, but it's not necessarily connected with the individual. With the nation in the Old Testament, it is connected. So you can see the confusion for the Jews. These people got killed by Pilate, probably because they're sinners. And so if you get along with Pilate, that makes you not a sinner. Do you see the logic there? And so Jesus coming at this saying, do you think they got killed because of that? So Jesus draws a clear line from chapter 12, which is live for the approval of God, not the approval of Pilate. And then this is a natural kind of follow-up question. Life for God will accumulate treasures in heaven, but not necessarily here on earth. That's what we've just got done doing for the last few weeks. There's blessings that come with loving God and living for God, but they don't necessarily occur in this lifetime. The blessings we're looking for and pursuing are more than welcomed in this lifetime, but we're really setting things up for the next lifetime. So it's a common worldview in the first century that gets addressed here, that if heaven has different kinds of rewards, how do we treat carnal misfortune and punishments here on earth? What do they mean? What does it mean if something bad happens to a good person or what we commonly call the problem of evil? How can a good, all-powerful God allow evil to happen? And that's a, a question that oftentimes gets thrown at believers. If you haven't had it thrown in your face, it's time to think about, okay, do I know how to deal with that question? And in these passages, this chapter is part of how we deal with it. Is a person being judged by God here on earth when they get an earthly punishment for something or a bad thing happens to them? Isn't suffering then from God? You get the logic or the question line here? If God made everything and he's in control of everything and then they're suffering did God make suffering happen? What about these Galileans who got killed by Pilate? How can anything bad ever happen under a good God's rule? How is that even possible? If God's good, we should all be dancing with the unicorns and jumping through the flowers, and that should be our life if God's a good God. Why is there bad stuff if God's good? Then how is Pilate's evil justified in that kind of world? And and since Pilate, we've had lots of evil people do evil things like it's insane. Is God all powerful? Why doesn't he stop this? He must be complicit. So again, as humans, we can only go with like, what do we see and what do we know? And we can think that we know this intellectual question, but Jesus's answer, it hyper simplifies it. Honestly, look at verse three. I tell you, no, that's the answer. No. It's not how it works. Jesus answers this direct, complex, current event commentary, and he simply says, no, they're not worse sinners. It was not because of their sin that Pilate killed them. If anything, it's because they're Jews. And then he says, and then he warns them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you're worried about suffering and bad things happening to people in general, hypothetically, out there in the world, you should really be more focused on if you're going to get punished by God. Again, it's the same, it's the reverse of the argument. Set up treasures in heaven, but also be warned so that you don't perish in the afterlife. And so this is kind of the flip side of that coin. The repent there in verse 3 is metanoia. It means to be transformed. It's an ongoing tense, by the way. In other words, you could re- translate that repenting. Unless you are repenting common present tense, ongoing. In the verse five, he uses the same word, but it's in the, in the final tense of the word, unless you have repented, past tense. It's a completed thing. So there's two uses of the word in the English that look the same, but Jesus is doing two very different things with these passages. And then in verse four, he says, or those 18. So this is another news cycle item. There's no complimentary evidence of it. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Just means it was just the news of the day. Right? Most of the news of our day will not go into the history books. The thing with Israel, maybe, but most of our current events and who offended who is not going to go into the history books. So this second one he brings up is a misfortune. It's not Pilate's evil killing people. It's a tower that fell. And by implication, it's probably an accident. It, you could argue it's an architectural error, but it's probably some sort of thing where there was a, a weather event or something happened that made this tower fall small rumbling in the earthquake and either way the tower falls people get killed so again if God is all good why do accidents happen why do towers fall on people and they die does this mean they were sinners and this argument goes into like people that are infirm or get sick they believe those people somehow had to repent of something to get healthy and there's still that, it's, it's a really twisted belief system, but there's still that attitude. If you have some terminal disease, it's probably because of some hidden sin in your life. You should repent and God will heal you right now. So again, the Bible handles, it doesn't back away from this issue. It just handles it very directly. And, and, I'll, and I'll repeat it because Jesus did. If only good happens to good people and only bad happens to bad people, then how does Pilate even get into his position? And, 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 and the tower was not well built and it was somehow a tool of God to create a consequence for sin, Jesus' answer, verse 5, is, I tell you, no, that's not how it works. And, the, and, and again, he repeats his warning for the individual repentance. We have, then, intellectual clarity. We know that this is not the, the way that God has set it up. No, evil and accidents are not from God. We have, if you want intellectual clarity, there it is. If you want the unpacking of that, then we have the rest of the chapter. The suffering is not ordained response from God to sin. It's simply carnal punishment that we know. In fact, the Bible outlines four different reasons for bad things in your life. And here they are. You can have persecution, chapter 12. Evil people can do bad things to good people. And that's called persecution. And that only stockpiles your heavenly credibility your street cred in heaven, those gold streets, if you've been persecuted because you love the Lord, you're just getting honors and props that you can lay at the feet of Jesus when you get to heaven. So in that case, you should rejoice when suffering happens to the righteous because they're righteous. The response to that should be our rejoicing. All right, here's another one. There's actually evil in the world. So there is suffering due to earthly evil, and that gets laid out on good people and bad people alike. And so in that case we should repent and forgive that person. That's easier said than done. Here's the third one, misfortune, right? Suffering happens and we don't know the reason. It's just bad luck, so to speak. So the response to that should be to repent and trust that God knows what he's doing. Again, easier said than done, right? And then here's, here's the last one, the, the end of the chapter. There is suffering due to our fear and the burdens that humans put on us. So we suffer because we've made our own hell. And in that case, we should repent and follow Jesus and stop that pattern. So in those four situations, like you start to unpack that whenever something bad happens, part of what we're doing as humans is which of the four is this? Is this because I've stood on the word of God? Is it because I'm actually facing evil? Is it because there's natural consequences and just misfortune in this world that we live in? Or is it because... I'm putting my own fear into the situation and nothing's actually happened. I'm just scared and therefore I'm suffering, right? So there's, more, there's real moral evil in the world and the ramifications of it are horrible. There are pilots in the world and they do horrible things to people. Yeah. And, and even if you haven't been the victim of the Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or these mass historical evil people, maybe you've just had a brother that was cruel to you when you grew up or you had a sister or a sibling that was just wrong, at every step or you had a friend that betrayed you. There are just evil people in the world that do evil things and they cause evil and they cause broken relationships. Jesus calls them unclean spirits because what they're doing is motivated by an anti-God attitude and disposition. They live for themselves, they live for others, or they live for the temptations of the enemy. And then they do things that break relationships and hurt people. That's tragedy. And, and, it, and, and ultimately, sometimes it even ends in death, and we know death to be horrible. We know it to be a curse in a biblical sense. Here's the, the thought, though, that the fact that we know that there's moral evil in the world, I think, is an apologetic evidence for the fact that there is a God. When something bad happens, and your response to it is, that's bad. That's, the, that's a wrong thing. That shouldn't happen. And I think when we get saved and follow God and we read the Word, we get a heightened sense of that. Like, we start to see more clearly that's right and that's wrong, and that was wrong behavior, and we can name it as wrong. But then you you say, like, when a lion kills a gazelle, do we call that, does anything in our spirit say that was wrong, or do we just call it dinner, right? When animals do things to each other, we don't have a moral sense of, well, that was not okay for that to happen. But when humans do the same thing to each other, we're like, that's not okay, and there's something in us that says it's wrong. Romans 1 says the law of God is written on our hearts. We know it for a certainty that that was incorrect behavior. And I think that alone is an evidence. We show the work of the law written on our hearts. We have a conscience that bears witness. And between each other, our thoughts will accuse or excuse behaviors based on a moral code that God put on our hearts. It's all right. that's, that's an evidence. So being the victim of a moral evil is clearly not the fault of the victim. Jesus says no. Everyone has an ability to commit moral evil and repent and commit moral good. There is a thing called free will, common answer to the problem of evil. And Jesus explains no, but then he refocuses them to pay attention to yourself. Like, no, that the, the, the evil does not mean that person was a sinner. But what about you? Let's talk about you where are you at on these things? And people don't like to have their sense of injustice turned back on themselves. So the reaction of the Godfather is the same. Repent and change our frame, frame of mind and how we look at this. What would happen if God didn't restrain people? What if he, he didn't hold back the evils of this world? What would happen if God never protected or put a hedge around people? There's a, a, an image of God as an eagle covering its, its young, right? What if God didn't do any of that? What if evil was given free reign on this earth? So the evil that we do see is the stuff that has been allowed, but what about all the things God doesn't allow? What about the things he does stop? What about the thousands of instances where evils or diseases or hurts have been turned around and believers see that and recognize God's power in those situations? So the real miracle is that we don't think evil all the time of ourselves, like in the time of Noah. All people on earth thought evil all the time, except for Noah and his family. I don't think we're there. I think God and the force of the church and the Holy Spirit and the battles that are going on, I think there's a pitched battle in the in the, the will of man. I know people that aren't saved that are generally good people, don't you? They're nice people. They don't have themselves aligned with God. But there is definitely a, a, a spirit influence over this world that there, there's a spectrum of behavior versus all people, all evil, all the time. And then you get this other thing in the problem of evil. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dwell on this for just a couple seconds and we'll go on with the chapter. Job. We have an entire book of Job on this. You can't get to the problem of evil and not look at the book of Job. But here's the thing. It is Job asked God again and again and again, Why? Why is this happening? Why me? Why is this going on? And we know as readers that God was doing a work in the spiritual realm, and Job was the hero of that work. God had put faith in him through his struggles. And the suffering that Job, I, I think Job is painted as a picture as the worst possible set of horrible events that could happen to anyone. I don't know people that can claim they've had it as bad as Job did. And literally, all his kids got killed in a, one building crash. Like this is horrible stuff, but his misfortune was allowed for heavenly reasons, even though Job was a perfectly good man. Jesus knows this. He's read this book. So when they're like, what about these people that got, he's like, no, they're not worse sinners. And that's not why, what's going on there. So Job 42, one says, then Job answered the Lord and said, and this is after the Lord told him, like, I'm not going to tell you why this is happening. Like God never tells Job why all the bad stuff happens to him ever. He does, Job does say, I know what you can do and you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. God, God asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And therefore I've uttered what I did not understand. Job says, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Listen, please. And let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. And I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, this is Job's response. The fact that he questioned God, he says, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. At the end of the day, after all that suffering, Job has still got a heart to just say, I repent. I don't know. I'm not God. I didn't set the plumb line of the earth. I'm not operating at the heavenly level. I simply don't know. And honestly, Jesus direct answer of no one word answer and then worry about your own repentance Job comes to the exact same place. And maybe that's where Jesus got this from, right? At the end of the day, Job just says, I repent. Who am I to figure this out? And there's an intellectual honesty to that too. God has a purpose for everything. And we have to trust that his purpose is good. We aren't God, but what we do know about God is that he works all things for the, for the wellness or the goodness of the people that he's, he's caring for. We don't know the full story. So there's persecution, suffering due to earthly righteousness. There's evil, suffering due to earthly evil. There's misfortune, suffering because, and we don't know why. And then there's simply, and then there's this lack of trust or fear, which is suffering because we've made our own suffering because somehow or another, we like to suffer. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, there are plans for good and not for disaster that I will give you a future and a hope. We know that, we know that that is God's will. That's the answer to suffer the problem of evil is that we know God is not. So really Jesus converts the dialogue on one word and I, and I don't want to miss this in our verses. He uses the word will. Do you see that? Will all likewise perish. Instead of what has happened in the past, he points them towards the future. Humans often make the error of immediacy and the error of persistence. They're both fallacies. We assume that my pain is the pain immediacy. And then we make the fallacy of persistence. We assume that all pain will forever happen. That if God's all powerful and he's all good, yes and yes, then he must be either evil or weak because of what we currently see and because of what I experience. And the assumption there is we assume that the present evil is always the case and that God accepts evil always because he accepts evil today or yesterday. You see my my point? But Jesus uses the word will, which adds a third dimension. Will God always accept that evil? Will evil always be undealt with? Why doesn't he stop evil? The answer is he will. Right? Why doesn't he stop suffering? The answer is he will. And Jesus points at that, including your evil. By the way, if he stopped all evil in the world, he would also have to stop each one of us. Like we would be ended. Because at some point we all commit evil. We all do wrong things. Romans says we've all fallen short. So if he's going to stop evil in the world, at what point of evil or degree of evil does he start stopping people? So we're all happy if, say, you know, um, Alexander the Great stops his invasion and poof, he's just gone off the earth, right? But what about me? Do I get poof off the earth too for all future infractions and trespasses that I'll commit? Because ending evil also means ending humanity. So God's, God's will and his promise around suffering is that he will end it and he will amend it, period. And that, so Jesus says no and repent or you will all likewise perish. You will all have that consequence unless you deal with this. So if you see that thing as horrible that just happened across the street, know that that's a possibility for you in the future too. So deal with you. Revelation 21.4, if you want to get God's plan and where he's headed with all this suffering, Revelations 21.4, you guys know this verse, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Can God make it any more clear about what his intention is? What's going to happen with that horrible, bad thing that happened? He will deal with it. Do you trust him? You trust him that he'll deal with it. Is he faithful in his promises or not? Well, that is an extremely hard thing to do because pain is something we almost want to hold on to it. Injustice is something we want to grab onto, but just because there is an evil, just because there is evil doesn't mean that God isn't good or just or tolerant of that evil. We have to think in terms of a timeline, not our present moment. Just because we don't know the whole story doesn't mean that there isn't a good ending to that story, yet we've been promised that good ending. What we need to do is hold to the promises of God. God has also promised that he will see that this is all clarified someday. First Corinthians 13, 12, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. Simply put, I trust God. I trust God. I trust that he's good. And I think in the same way there's something written on our heart when we see something bad happen, we say that's bad. We know it's bad. We don't have to consult the Bible. We know that it's bad. I think there's something written on our heart too that we know God is good. There's something about it that it's a hard idea to let go of, that God is good, and he he is wishing for us that kind of future. So there is a a Christian-limited perspective of we don't know everything. Boy, how different is that from every other world religion? If you only adhere to it strong enough, you will know everything perfectly. But Christianity doesn't give you that out. It gives you this imperfect view because of your carnal, limited, fleshly eyes. Just because we suffer doesn't mean the story is about us. It doesn't mean that story, the story is about suffering for all time. In fact, the, the fact that we suffer and that we aren't the center of this universe, we, we have to know that Jesus is the center of the universe. Who suffered more, Jesus or you? Who went through more? Who was persecuted more? Who was betrayed more, Jesus or you? So if we think about pain and suffering, we, we, part of thinking about it is to say that Jesus is the center of everything. And he gives a parable to express that idea. Verse 6, he also spoke this parable. The also there is, this is part of this conversation, which gives us a pretty interesting perspective on the fig tree. A certain man had a fig tree planted, planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years, I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? I look at the world, you guys, and all I see is evil out there all the time. If I don't see one side of evil, I see the other side of evil. And and it's a twisting. And Satan, once we figure out his scheme on this side, he just swings the pendulum over here. And then there's sin over here. If you don't like leftistism, then he's just going to swing the pendulum over to rightist isdom. And, he, and he'll get you on either side. He doesn't care, as long as he keeps your eyes off Jesus. And this fig tree, and you look at it, and you, the keeper of the vineyard just looks at it, and goes, boy, I don't see any fruit. I don't see anything good coming out of this tree. I don't see any blessings. Like, cut the thing down and end it. But, verse 8, thankfully, verse 8, But he answered and said to him, Sir let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. The word fertilize there is literally dung until I dung this thing. I'm going to dung it. (laughs) And, and, And if it bears fruit, well, and if not, after that, you can cut it down. So likewise, here's the parable, we're created to bear fruit, yet some of us don't. God's word is growing in our heart and it should grow into the fruit of good works and selflessness for others. If God looked at us prior to today and he didn't see any fruit, would it be just if he cut you down or is he waiting for you to bear fruit? Is he giving you one more year, one more day, one more week to do something that bears fruit on your tree? Something where you think more about others than yourself. 3 years that's complete the number 3 is a full set the idea of 3 years is that this tree is completely useless they're supposed to let the tree go for the first couple years so it can get its root system but then there's a certain amount of time where even if that that root system's set and the tree's been up bearing fruit you just cut the tree down and put another one in its place it makes total sense the idea is that the tree is just taking nutrients out of the soil without giving anything back and the same's true with humans you're just sucking air you're taking up space. Isn't that how we think about evil? Look at all the bad these people are doing. So it's not unfair to cut the tree down. That's my point. It's actually just to cut the tree down. It's an appropriate gardening method. That tree is taking up resources that could be taken by a fruit bearing tree. Well, this is pretty harsh if you apply it to the church. And, it, and Jesus artfully shows why suffering happens. God's waiting for fruit. And, and it's funny, because I was like, Steph, what's the verse about, like, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but to have, ever, and she's like, John 3.16? Uh, oh, yeah, that's the, actually the verse, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The word perish in John 3.16 is the same stuff he's using in verse 3 and verse 5. Perish, to be destroyed. This is also what we call mercy and patience why do bad things happen in this world? Because God is merciful and he's patient, but it doesn't mean he agrees with those bad things. In fact, the people that commit those things will be held accountable to it. I also want to get into the discussion of poop. God is calling, he's nurturing, he's building, he's growing, and he's tending. And note that the fertilizer in the first century was not a chemical composition from some seed company. Fertilizer in the first century was dead fish, poop. You'd mix that into the soil to put nitrates back into it. So literally to poop the tree means to mix in those resources. And sometimes, and again, it's a great parable. Sometimes God mixes in some poop into our lives to see if it bears fruit. Sometimes suffering is because we're righteous people, because we're trees that should bear fruit. So sometimes those things happen. Sadly, sometimes those things happen after we decide to follow Jesus. And God's like, all right, let's see what it's going to take to get this tree to bear some fruit. And then events start to happen. Things start to happen. Arguments start to happen. Um, God doesn't leave the tree alone in this parable. He actually gives it more resources to see if it can provide the fruit. Isn't that cool? The gardener, (laughs) He poops the tree to help the tree. And so Jesus creates a complex parable, verse 9, and if it bears fruit, great, well. And if not, after that, again, Jesus points to the future. God will judge it is coming, bear fruit or perish. That's the two options. It's similar to the wheat and the tares. God's letting everything grow up together and he's going to figure it out later. And praise God for later. Because if later was like 20 years ago, I don't know if I'd be on my way to heaven. I'm glad later is somewhere down the road from here. And I hope we're all recognizing that later is an act of mercy. Paul defines fruit later in in Galatians 5.22. If you want to know what's the fruit we're supposed to do, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit he's looking for in your life. God, don't you want me to do wonders and and be like Billy Graham and serve like Mother Teresa and do all these? No, he's looking for faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, good, kindness, and goodness. That's what he wants. Some of you he'll use for those more burdensome roles in the church because he wants you to do those things. But he really wants the simple result, the simple fruit of a godly life. That's what he wants. Now, he was teaching, verse 10, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, apparently some of the synagogue leaders are still letting him teach, right? So he's walked into a synagogue, he's teaching just like we're doing here on a Sunday and behold, and behold, and watch this, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity." And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and then looked for the fruit and glorified God. Praise the Lord that, that God waited one more day for this lady. And she glorifies God. She's doing what God's asked her to do. And she does it instantly after this healing. First of all, like oddly enough this week, of course, all of us surf the net now and then, right? But I, And for some reason, I was reading about fentanyl addiction. And one of the things of fentanyl addiction is that when people are really tripped up on this stuff they get what's called the nods and what they do is their, their body nods over and they're still kind of like walking zombies almost but their face turns 90 degrees to the ground and they start kind of walking with their head facing the concrete and their neck's totally bent over and then I'm like going okay I gotta get back to work on Bible study and I'm reading this this lady's bent over and she can't stand up and I'm not saying she's a fentanyl addict but I am saying there's something about evil that wants to just bend and break people and it's not good. It's not good for a human being to be bent over. And I think this verse, it's a physical, visual ailment, just like the tower tipping on people and Pilate killing people. This is something that's like, there was an assumption in this culture, like surely there must be a sin in her life because look at how she suffered for 18 years. God's never healed her. She must be evil. And I think Jesus puts, there's this way in which Luke, Luke ties this together. Jesus' answer to that is very simple. no. It's not because of her sin. It's because she has a spirit of infirmity. There's an actual evil intervening in this person's life and has tied her up in such a way that's humiliating and unhideable. And it's been 18 years. That's a punishment. Again, comparing our punishment to hers, that's a horrible punishment. Wouldn't you agree? Who would want to go through life like that? And Jesus' reaction is, this is not from God. It's a spirit of infirmity. There's actually an evil oppression on her. That that said, there are people that are hunched over and bent over for purely medical reasons. This isn't that case. Jesus' claim here is that this is a spiritual reason. So again, I I think when we get into these situations, as Christians, we need to be careful to recognize that sometimes physical ailments are medical reasons, biological reasons, But sometimes there's spiritual intervention there too. And so as Christians, we're like, get the best doctors we can get, target it as best we can, but also recognize and pray for that person on a spiritual level too. So there's a spiritual cause here. It's not her fault. And it's not an indication of her relationship with God. And Jesus with a word says, you are loosed from your infirmity. That is God's will when it comes to evil. He wants to free us from it to break the chains and to free people, Romans 6.22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit unto holiness at the end, everlasting life. Two stages. You're saved, you're set free, you can now do good things instead of always doing evil things, and you can look forward to an everlasting life. Jesus asked about suffering, and if the victim is a worse sinner, he answers by healing somebody this is his answer. He answers through action. You want to see God's will when we look at redemption and healing and salvation and the fruits of God. This is God's will. His, his will is to heal people at some point in some time. So he says, woman, you're loose from your affirmity. Uh, that is not like he's just sexist. Um, I think he's actually calling her woman because other people had other names for her. And he's raising her to the point of being, she's not necessarily saved, she's also given her personhood back. He says, you're loosed, the Greek word there is luo, it means to be released or let go or freed from bindings, given liberty. I think sometimes one of the horrible parts about evil is it binds people. God's healing is not the same as repenting, because the cross hasn't happened yet, but his freeing is something he can do to allow for repentance to happen. Her reaction is the glorification of God. It was not her appeal. Jesus saw her, went to her, freed her, and then she repented. Right? So there is an action that God can take that has nothing to do with the human being, which is to give people a break from their sins so they can try to turn to the light. Then he lays his hands on her. Again, using the word woman, loosing her from this infirmity. Then he touches her. Remember, he's the teacher in the synagogue on Sabbath when this happens. So there's a purification traditions that we've talked about before that have to happen. But in this case, Jesus touching her is this act of affectionate loving. I don't think it's like a spiritual laid hands on her kind of thing, right? But there's this intimacy to it. In the face of all these traditions around purification, instead of rejecting or turning her away, he pities her, he cares for her, he heals her, and he touches her. That's God's will. That's what God thinks of evil. God, in the face of all the wrong things that are happening, God wants to do this. So persistent is the idea that the infirm are cursed. This actually angers the religious elite. Look at the next verse. It actually ticks them off. To Jesus, this is proof that God loves those that suffer and wants joy. To the synagogue, quote unquote, rulers, this is a Sabbath infraction. Oh my goodness. 18 years of suffering just got ended and they're upset about it. Like the line is getting clearer and clearer and clearer. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, there's no quotes, by the way, those air quotes were mine. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Oh, how holy this man is. Holy garbage. He, so the fact is he answered in verse 14. I just want to point this out because in Luke, we've seen a number of occasions with an unclean spirit. And I want to point out that all of those occasions, when you pick them apart, Have the same pattern that evil acts the same way with different faces. Here's how you recognize it He answers, in other words, He gives an argument. The word there in the Greek is a legal response or a rebuttal. In other words, Jesus heals somebody, and this guy sees it as an argument. And one of the things we note is a bickering spirit with evil, they want to bicker, they want to argue right? I thought it was great today. There's a guy, and I don't, I'm not going to speak for his spirituality, but Mike Johnson's the new speaker of the house. And he's getting interviewed by one of the political people. I don't know if you guys saw this interview. And they're asking him about some issue. And he just goes, you know, if you want to know what I think on an issue, pick up your Bible and actually read it. And then you'll know what I think of the issue. Like instead of bickering with the the commentator, with the interviewer, he's just like, read the Bible. And then you know what I think. I'm not going to bicker with you but there's a spirit of bickering in our culture that we think it's normal. It's not, it's evil. Um, Indignation. He answers with indignation. The only response of the spiritually impotent people is rage and emotionalism. The only response of an unclean spirit is simply anger in these situations. So there is a, uh, he believes there's a human ranking of people and Jesus just went to the lowest and raised her up, literally straightened her out. There's a spiritual fruitlessness to this man. He can't heal on any day of the week. But Jesus can heal whenever he feels like it. And his response to that is rage. There is a rage in an unclean spirit when they meet a godly person that lives with a godly backbone and godly back, like boldness and stands on the word of God and they don't have any of that joy and peace and patience and love and kindness in their heart that they, they either think you're a hypocrite or they're just mad at you. And they don't know why. I think it's an evil thing that happens, right? There's a rage behind these people. And then notice verse 14, he says to the crowd, he's a coward. He doesn't go to Jesus with this one-on-one. He doesn't pull Jesus aside and say, why are you doing this on the Sabbath, brother? Like, what are you doing here? Instead, he t- instead of taking it up with Jesus, who's clearly his spiritual superior, he goes to the crowd. He tries to rally up, get a mob put together around his beliefs. So he tries for popularity instead of setting a spiritual example, instead of actually living it to where people can see it and respect him. He just tries to argue for it. There's an unclean spirit here. By the way, the ruler, she. But the point is that when he says to the crowd, I want to point this out too. In verse 6, 13. She was glorifying God. She just got healed and she's praising God. She's singing songs. You know, she's like, you know, lift up my heart. Do, 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 do. And she's singing stuff, and people are like, this is awesome. This guy's actually interrupting her when he speaks up. He's interrupting the glorifying of God. So we have a bickering, rage filled coward that interrupts people. You recognize this spirit? And, and Luke's trying to show us that, that what this looks like in a much more subtle situation. This guy's dressed nice. He's in a politically high position. He's awesome. But it's the same evil spirit in this guy that interrupts the work of God, interrupts the worship of God. And he says, there are six days. Yeah, he's quoting the word of God. Look at that. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus. There are six days that we work and one day that belongs to God. That's all over in the New Testament. It's called Sabbath. So he quotes the word of God and then then he says, therefore come and be healed. So he starts by quoting the scriptures and then he says, he's quoting nothing but his own opinion at this point. This is absolute malarkey. There is nothing in the Bible that says you can't heal on the Sabbath, nothing. So he starts with the word of God, but finishes his sentence with absolute lies. He twists the word of God. And we see this. What does the word of God actually say? Like, this is the problem with evil. They do it so well. You're like, wait a second, am I wrong? What am I thinking? Like, you got to go back to the scriptures and get your head straight. Exodus 29, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. That's true. There's a job, whatever you do for your employment, and it says you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. It says you shall rest on the Sabbath. Exodus 23 12. You should take a break, you should relax. And then it says specific to plowing and harvesting, Exodus 34, 21, shouldn't plow and you shouldn't harvest. Okay, so that's two categories we should take off the map. So if any of you are plowing or harvesting on the Sabbath, I'm going to talk to you about it because I love you. Don't do that. And then it says you should rest your animals and your slaves. So if any of you have slaves or animals that you are putting to work on the Sabbath, then we should talk about that. You shouldn't be doing that. The day is holy for God's convocation, Leviticus 23.3, which means on this day we do God's work. So it's not like you just get to stay home and stay in bed all day. You're actually supposed to, in Leviticus, you're supposed to do these services for God on Sabbath. Worship, pray, study his word. Fellowship with the saints. Bam, 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 bam. Read Leviticus. Clear distinction between your work, Deuteronomy 5.13, and God's work, all of Leviticus. Clear distinction. So, which of those talks about healing in any way, shape, or form? Tons of references to Sabbath. None of them talk about healing. In fact, if anything, the closest you're going to get is that God forgives and covers sin on the Sabbath. He takes care of something. So when the original question is, are these people worth sinners? If anything else, healing her is an act of forgiveness, if you believe that false gospel. And that happening, if you believe that, then you should be really okay with healing on the Sabbath. Like all the hospitals should be open on Sabbath. It's a day for healing. What exactly did Jesus do? Again, if you're going to accuse Jesus of doing work on the Sabbath, what exactly did he do? Verse 12, he saw her. Can we see people on Sabbath? Yes, we're supposed to. He called her. Are we supposed to call people to gathering in the fellowship of the saints on a Sunday? On a Sabbath? Yeah. Commanded. Then he talked to her. He said to her, quote, Are we supposed to talk to each other on the Sabbath? And then he laid hands on her. That's his actual actions. Are we supposed to give each other holy hugs and kisses on the Sabbath? Yeah, I, I, the kisses, I, I, you know, culturally I'm working up to those. Uh, but like he, he did four things, saw, called, said, and laid hands on her. None of those are breaking Sabbath. None of them are. Yet this unclean spirit equivocates healing with work. And in doing, by putting those two things together, he has created a new definition. What Jesus says is you are loosed. He actually doesn't do any work. He actually just uses words. And he's the teacher in the synagogue on that day. Isn't the word of God supposed to loose us from things? Release us from burdens? Give us a break? And tell us from God's own words that we are on the right track if we repent and seek His word. To lose something is to let it go, to release it, release it, and actually give it a rest from suffering. Is Sabbath a day of rest? Yeah. And so he's the last thing this unclean spirit does is he twists the scriptures. And and we have to unpack it because he twists it so well. He's a pro at doing it. He twists what Jesus actually did. He was teaching and consoling. And then he twists what the scriptures actually say. And he does it in one sentence. So if you think your enemy isn't talented at this, you're mistaken. It's very good. So let's add it up. He interrupts. He's indignant. He bickers. He twists. He is a spiritually unclean spirit by any Luke definition. And so is there suffering in the world Uh, yeah, there is no, that's not God's will. And look, here's one coming from within the church, laying a burden on that doesn't belong there. Then the Lord answered him. Same, same legal word. The Lord's engaging in a legal discourse with this last thing. And, and his legal discourse is hypocrite. He lays out an act. He's here's the true judgment. You're an actor. You're a fake. And he calls him that this is not gentle. Jesus right? This is not Jesus on the final board. This is a different kind of character. Hypocrite. That's his word. You're, sp- you're not supposed to be healing on the Sabbath. And he's like, you're an actor. You're a fake. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away, lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham who Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? and when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I just love this. This is the answer to evil. Isn't it our job to make things better? It's not our job to stop evil or stop towers from falling on people. Our job's to simply make things better with the people God puts in our lives. The word hypocrite here you know, as Greek for an actor, he's calling this ruler of the synagogue a fake. That would not make this guy happy, right? He's questioning his position. The, the word for loosing the ox there is the same luo. It's the same root word for the word when he loosed the woman from her affliction. So I think that word's being used very intentionally. Um, it says ox or donkey, you'd say, why those two animals? Because he's quoting Exodus twenty-three, twelve. He actually quotes the word of God back at the unclean spirit. You want to know what the word of God actually says? The word of God actually says that on Sabbath, you should give your animals a break and let them go feed in the field. Let them go like Grant just did. And on the seventh day, you shall rest and your ox and your donkey should rest too. And what Jesus just did with healing is that he let that woman have a break from her suffering. He gave her rest simple. You care for your beasts on the Sabbath, you'll take care of their needs. How much more should you take care of the needs of other humans? That's not work. That's the blessing of the kingdom. So, and then 16, so ought not, not only is this not work, it's an obligation. Jesus used the word ought there. Ought not you be giving rest to other people. What can I do to take something off of somebody else's plate? That's what Sundays are for. How can I make somebody else's life easier? How can I put a little Debbie snack cake into somebody's hand who adores those things? What can I do to serve this woman? Verse sixteen, he doesn't call her her cripple. He doesn't call her old. He doesn't put any adjective there. He just say, he just names her as a human being, this woman. Then he gives her a better title, daughter of Abraham. Not only is she a woman, she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a Jew. She's special to God. She is precious. She's one of the chosen people. And she's being attacked by Satan for long enough. And the suffering has to end. It's over. It has to be over. He even says Satan has bound her. I mean, clearly he's seeing this as a spiritual thing. And he's done this with so many people. The work of the kingdom of God is to fight the evil of the world. And it's to fight the evil of the world by simply releasing people from it you're not, that is not your authority anymore. When Jesus claimed authority on the cross and gave it to his church, one of the great gifts we give to people around us is we can loose people from the evil in their life. And we can do that. And Jesus even says, think of it. Like there's an, there's a, in the Greek, like the idea there is like, there's an exasperation in Jesus. Like, can you not see the difference here? This is so crystal clear. You're caught up in all these intellectual arguments, but can't you see it? 18 years of suffering just got ended. Isn't that beautiful? Think of her pain. So to consider it, to think about it, to do what Jesus has asked us to do is not to judge her, but to think of her and empathize with her pain. Our goal isn't to just boss people around, it's to counsel them. And give them clarity. All his adversaries were put to shame. So it's more than just the ruler of the synagogue. There's a group of them that were against Jesus, and they care more about their false teaching than they do about mercy, kindness, care, and affection. That's a shame. They were ashamed, and everybody there, instead of seeing the woman as cursed, starts seeing the ruler of the synagogue as cursed. Like their their visions get clearer because of Jesus. Jesus is obviously right. The ruler is obviously wrong. And everyone, all the multitude, again, the reaction is rejoiced. The end result is not bitterness, suffering, or arguments. The end result is joy in the healing of this woman. Look at what God has done. Look at how beautiful this is. But what's amazing is for some people, that's just not good enough. But it is for me, I hope it is for you, that when people healed and they get better and they they find their feet under them again, that It's a glorious thing at the end of verse 17. It's a glorious thing that Jesus has done. When he helps me get my act together, when he helps me control my tongue, when he helps me love on my wife a little better than I did yesterday, what a glorious thing that is. And why is that not enough for humans? Jesus did stuff and it was good. And the kingdom was taught to back that up by us doing it just like Jesus did it. Luke points out that Jesus led with these small moments Jesus revealed hypocrisy, he showed mercy, and the discussion of evil gets answered. Some evil is human corruption, some of it's human nesting, and it seems a small but tiny thing to heal one daughter of Abraham, but against a Roman backdrop, this is the battle, this is the fight. And then he said, verse 18, again, the word then is there. This is part of the same discussion. And then he said, What is the kingdom of God like? What are you supposed to be doing in the kingdom of God? You're supposed to be judging this bent over woman or accusing those people that were killed by Pilate as bad people? Is that what our job is, is to accuse other people of evil? Is our job to run around and be the, the evil police? Or is our job to be an active force of good in the world? So what is the kingdom like? And to what shall I compare it? How do I get humans to understand what the kingdom of God is? Verse 19, it's like a mustard seed. By the way, mustard seed, smallest of the seeds. It's like a, a hard piece of earwax. I mean, it's not. there's nothing to it. You roll it in your finger and flick it. Like Mustard seeds are super small, which a man took and put in his garden and it grew to become a large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. The kingdom of God is not comparable to Israel or Rome or any other earthly kingdom. Kingdom of God is something different. It's less like Rome and more like a mustard seed, right? Think of the comparison of those two different kingdoms. But the mustard seeds, cool. So the traditional understanding of this is that it's a view of the church or the kingdom of God that the church is going to start really, really small and it's going to grow really, really big and cover the planet. Like that's the traditional view of this. Um, it's a perfectly acceptable view. No one would expect that the simple act of mercy and healing this woman is going to grow into an entire kingdom that covers the earth. Nobody would have saw that happening, but, and, and there, so if you go into commentaries, there's people that transpose other parables onto this parable. Well, birds throughout the Bible are always evil. Trees throughout the Bible are usually governments or ruling structures. Um, The church then is going to grow so large and powerful that evil is going to nest in it. Another viable way to look at this parable, and in the context of the problem of evil, you could read this then, verse 18, with a certain level of like, you just faced off against this ruler who is twisting the word of God and he called him a hypocrite. And he's like, man, what's the kingdom of God like? What do I compare it to? It's like this small, wonderful thing that grows. And we should know this too. Mustard seeds don't grow into trees. We all know that they grow into bushes. So this is an unnatural parable. When he says a mustard seed that becomes a large tree, that doesn't happen in the natural world. So he's explaining like, it's like this thing that's super small, but then something unnatural happens and it gets big and and birds nest in its branches. Having dealt with this ruler of the synagogue, then you start to think, okay, well, maybe evil will nest inside of what people have made to be unnatural. Kingdom of God is meant to be a bush, like a burning bush with Moses, but they're going to turn it into a tree instead and they're going to root and nest in it. And so there's that idea that God plants a mustard seed, but people turn it into something that it shouldn't be. And then he says in verse 20, and again. So this is, again, part of where that perspective starts to make more sense. It says, and again. In other words, he's going to tell us another parable that means the same thing as the first one. And again, he said, to what shall I like in the kingdom of God? Same intro. It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures until it was all leavened. So in the same way that a mustard seed does not become a tree, um, a, a single woman does not do three measures of meal. Three measures of meal is uh, way more, that's enough for a hundred people to eat. So it'd be like if we had a hundred people coming to our church and we had one person making all the food. That's not natural and it doesn't work that way. So very similar framing is the other one. Leaven, unexpected. Uh, An image of growth, an image of filling up, but throughout the Bible, leaven is seen as evil or sin because it's puffed up air. It's corruption in the bread. You're actually rotting the bread so it puffs up, right? It sours the bread to give it a certain kind of flavor. The kingdom of God is good, like bread, and it's meant for certain things like nourishment and eating, but it can get puffed up. It can get overgrown. It can get corrupted. What's the kingdom of God like? Well, The kingdom of God is going to grow in an evil world and there will be evil people that hide themselves inside of it. This is, again, this is really tough for Sunday school. Like, how do you even get into this? So to hide leaven for the Jewish audience that he's talking to would have been a really evil thing to do because they're not supposed to have leaven in that bread. So for a woman to hide it and pretend like she's making unleavened bread, but she's really making leavened bread, is a lot like the ruler of the synagogue pretending that he's a spiritual leader. When he's not, he's full of sin and corruption and unclean spirits. Clearly, there's a hypocrite hiding investments pretending they're holy. Clearly, there's a woman hiding leaven in bread pretending that it's holy. And clearly, the kingdom of God is going to grow and it's going to grow so big that there's going to be things like mercy, love, and healing, but it's going to get puffed up with people that are interested in power, roosting places, and evil being on display publicly. This is, a com- well, this is a sad idea, isn't it? You mean the church is going to get so big that there'll be corrupt people that go to it just for the money and the power and the prestige? Really? Well, how do us good, simple people see through that? How do we even understand it? So, is there evil in the world? yes. Is God good? Yes. Is he holy? Yes. Will he deal with evil in the world? Yes. Is there a time where he will deal with our evil? Yes. We should repent so that we don't perish. Is there evil in the church? Even worse than Pilate, even worse than accidents, there's actually going to be evil in the kingdom of God. There's going to be bad, good people that say they're good, that do bad things. So the synagogue ruler is perched in that system as a corrupt and unclean spirit, and believers need to see that that God is waiting for the tree to bear fruit. And if it doesn't bear fruit, he's going to cut it down. And so you get this image. Luke just paints it differently than the other gospels do. God is going to deal with false teachers in the church. He will deal with them. And he's just waiting. He's waiting on us. Verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying. Again, that momentum towards Jerusalem. Towards Jerusalem. Luke keeps pointing out the path. What's interesting is we're not going to hit Jerusalem until chapter 19. This is an entire segment of the the gospel. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Like if there's corruption in the church, like how many is actually going to get saved? Like if there's corrupt, if there's leaven being hidden in the church and there's birds perching in the tree in this kingdom of God, if God's good, why are all of us so bad? Why are so many of us self-focused? How do we even live without sin? Is there anybody left that's not a sinner? Aren't we all going to perish? Are there any mustard bushes? Are there any unleavened loaves? Is there anything good? Like that's the bigger question, right? So the disciples are figuring this out. They use the word saved. I don't know if when you're new to Christianese, when you heard the word saved, was that kind of a shocking word to you? I remember when I first started hanging out with Christians, they'd say, are you saved? And I'm like, from what? Right? That Elon Musk interview reminds me of that too. It's like, he doesn't even know what they're talking about. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. If God wants to save me, I'm okay with that. Um, But he uses the word saved and the disciples are using that language too, as early as, you know, when they were under Jesus. If the ruler of the synagogue is off the mark, where am I left standing? I mean, this is the question. Like, who am I? If that guy's not holy, what am I all about? There's a religious debate even today about how many people will actually get saved. It's an interesting question for Christians. How many are actually following the path the way God intended? Are there few? Is there everybody? Is our tribe getting saved, but their tribe is not getting saved? Like, how does that all work? And again, it's still the question of evil. But Jesus, again, avoids the debate. He doesn't get into it. He says, and he said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Sound familiar? For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and they won't be able to. There's going to be a lot of people that don't get into heaven that thought they were going to. But again, he redirects it back to the individual who asked the question. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate there, Luke skips the story of the rich man and he just uses the term narrow gate. The other gospels, that was another image that Jesus gave. Verse Three and five are about suffering, repent or perish. This one is work for it, strive for it. The word strive, agonizamai. The root word for them is where we get the word agonize. What should your heart be agonizing over? Getting through the narrow gate, doing it the way God told us to do it. That's what you should be stressed about. Jesus says in other places that he's the door, he's the gate. He's the one we got to get through. It's not works that get us there. It's not legalism that gets us there. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that we strive for. He's the gate. The tree's going to get cut down. Not everybody's going to get saved. Not everybody bears fruit. But you are supposed to be going for the narrow gate. How do you go for the narrow gate? You do what you're told to do. So strive for it. The word strive there in the Greek is is how athletes would prepare for contest. Paul takes that athletic image and builds it all out in his letters. But he gets that in part because Jesus started with that word. There is a, a working out that takes intention, time, and sacrifice that athletes make in order to perform at a high level. And in the same way as believers, we do the same thing. I need to devote myself to devotional time to prayer time for the people that God's put in my life, to reading the word, to fellowshipping with the saints. We devote ourselves to these things. And luckily they're all a blessing. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he'll answer and say to you, I don't know you. Where are you from? And the, the, the idea there is, I don't even know your place of origin. I don't even know who you're from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. I don't know you. Okay, what's the most important thing in the Christian walk? That we know Jesus. The only thing that gets us in the door is who we know. We have to have a relationship with Jesus. Any religion that says it's about works or routines is missing this passage. It is about your relationship with a living God. How do you talk to God? You pray. How do you listen to God? You read his word. Uh, There's the Holy Spirit element in there too, but those are the two most simple. Here's the point. There will be denial, so strive now. Work now for what's going to happen. There will be a time coming when the door gets shut. That time's not now. Evil will be allowed to persist for a season, but there will be a time when the door is shut. No relationship, no clear allegiance, no ongoing iniquity. Repent and be saved. Make excuses and try it on your own. And the word here is thrust out. Honestly, the implication there is, I think, good in the English. There is a forceful pushing that will happen. A real difference between an intellectual concession in Jesus and the words here, striving and knowing. Do you just believe in Jesus intellectually? Or are you striving to be like him and get to know him? And that's a, that's a hard question for people. There's a consequential difference between Jesus knowing us and us thinking we know him. Again, the relationship here, it, it isn't whether or not we know Jesus. The people in verses 25 to 27, they know who Jesus is. But it, the, 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 the reality is Jesus doesn't know who they are. They've never built the relationship. So it's not an issue of our desire to be in heaven at all. It's an issue a, if Jesus knows us and has forgiven us. If we never ask for forgiveness, you're not going to get it. If you've never strived towards Jesus, then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know how else to read that, you guys. Uh, weeping is sadness. Gnashing of teeth is anger. There will be people sad that Jesus doesn't know them, and there are going to be people that are mad that Jesus doesn't know them. They'll just be angry. Verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves are thrown out. When all the heroes of your Old Testament faith are in heaven and you're not, you're going to be ticked off. There, again, he uses the word will. There will be. There it is again. Same as the beginning of the chapter. There's going to be a time when God judges. And at that time, there will be surprised people. And if you're sitting there going, and if there's a part of your heart right now going, I don't know where I'm at. I really don't know where I'm at. That's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's trying to get you to do some things in your life. And I just want to say that, because like, partially because I've been there and I know what it is. But if you're like, I'm not sure if God knows me or not, then you need to strive towards God. He knows your heart. He knows if you're striving or not. He knows if you're trying to find some compromised faith where you can get a little bit of sin and mixed in with a little bit of holiness, and maybe that mixture will be good. But that's like hiding the leaven in your bread. Don't do it. Don't use the leaven. Run from it. For those that get in, the suffering ends. For those on the outside, it just got started. The weeping and gnashing of teeth begins. And part of it is this idea that I can see who got in and who didn't. Wouldn't it be bad if like your worst enemy got in and you didn't? Verse 9, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they'll sit down in the kingdom of God. Okay, this is where Jesus starts going, hey, there's going to be non-Jews that get into the kingdom of God. There's going to be people from all over the world that get into the kingdom of God. But this ruler of the synagogue's not getting anywhere. Pompous, arrogant guy, hypocrite. Verse 30, and indeed there are are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. God simply doesn't look at our titles and achievements on this planet. It does not matter. He looks at obedience, service, humility, mercy, and grace. Heaven is a restful place with good company, globally diverse company, and there's no ranking system other than Jesus is Lord. And we're brothers and sisters. Good. I'm going to be surprised at who God elevates and who he doesn't. I think I'm married to somebody who's going to be in charge. So, I, you know, I honestly, you meet the hearts of people, and we know who is good and humble and gracious and kind. And we know who those people are, even here in the church. And we honor those people for those maturity, those elements of grace that they show us. God will do the same. Okay. Okay. This either sounds like really awesome, or for some people, this sounds really harsh and damning, doesn't it? Like, can you see where the same message would to be thrust out and the door shut? How cruel, but that's not cruel. That's simply doing what our hearts have always said should happen. Evil should end. All evil should end. And we know that that's the right thing to do. But then when God says, some people are going to be thrust out, well, well, that's cruel and mean, no, actually, that's doing the original thing you said should be done. How could a good God tolerate evil? Well, the end result is he won't tolerate evil forever. That evil will be thrust out. He will sort the good from the bad. So, first and last, verse, verse 31, we'll wrap up the chapter. On that very day, some Pharisees came to him, saying, came to him get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So they're blaming others and they're motivated by fear. This is that last kind of suffering. Here's a noble, is this a noble attempt to protect Jesus? Do we honestly think the Pharisees are trying to guard Jesus here? So the fact is they're twisting their words again. They got forked tongues and the re, the result is get out and depart. What they really want is for Jesus to shut up and stop talking. We love you. We're looking out for the best for you. You're a little bit too much of a Jesus nut. Can you bring the Jesus talk down just a notch We're doing this out of compassion, but at the end of the day, we want you to care what people think about you. Okay. All right. I just don't be a fool. Run from this garbage. When anybody says you're getting a little bit too crazy for Jesus and says you should hide your Jesus a little more because we're sick of hearing about it. Like awesome. You're on the edge of being persecuted. Like this is the line that you're finally getting to. Hey, just a Jesus freak. And we, we're thinking about what's best for you. And what's best for you is to just bring that Jesus down a little bit. You know, that kind of fear creates its own hell. Now I'm just worried about what people think about me all the time. Isn't it more freeing to not give a care for what other people think? Isn't that a better way to live? I don't really care what you think about me, but I love you. I want, I want to be on good terms with you, but I want Jesus more than I want you. At the end of the day, you can go walk and I'll choose Jesus. So I'm not going to hide Jesus. I'm going to hide you because you're the one that's ashamed of Jesus. He's going to be ashamed of you. Guess who's getting left out when the door gets shut? Verse 32. And he said to them, go tell that fox. I just love this. Uh, This isn't hypocrite. It's fox. A fox is a, is not a gentle picture. In the first century, foxes were Sly. And destructive. If you own chickens, you'll know this. All foxes want to do is take the fruit of your labors. All they want to do is come in and they don't just steal the eggs. They kill the chickens. They don't just come in and mess up your crops. They eat the roots. Like they destroy everything that humans try to do. Foxes are literally little parasites they're the part of the canine family that does not serve any purpose or anything. Most canines are trainable and usable for hunting, protecting, guarding things. Our dog literally plays with the chickens in the yard. And he could eat them with one snap of his mouth, but he protects them and guards them because he's a good dog. Foxes are not good dogs. They're evil little farts. And they, all they do is go around and destroy what people do. So this is what Jesus calls Herod calls him a name. By the way, this is treason. Roman empire, you get killed for this. So this gives, if anything else, this gives justification to kill Jesus. Make an example of him. But he says, you go tell that fox, which displays Jesus does not care about what Herod thinks about him. And this is the fear that everybody in that culture lived under. Make Romans happy or get killed. That is how Romans ruled. That is their kingdom. Jesus isn't part of that kingdom. He simply mentally disconnects from that kingdom. He's loosed from it. He's free from it. I don't live under that kingdom. I serve a living God. So you tell that fox, behold, in other words, come see, look at this thing. I cast out demons and performed cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Wow. That's a statement. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. You know what? You go tell Herod, I'm doing good things, and he can't kill me because I'm outside Jerusalem. That's like a bring it, isn't it? Put yourself in the Roman mentality. Some little carpenters walking around the countryside saying, I'm going to do what I want. Herod can't stop me. Wow. Bring him in here and let's get him killed. I mean, it's an instant decision for a Roman. The the people that are fearful would then be aghast and indignant. (gasps) What did you say? How dare you challenge what we think is appropriate? And Jesus just does it. It's just that easy. Uh, Don't miss the third day. Like, you can't go past this. It's clear in retrospect. The Listeners at the moment wouldn't have known what that meant. But Jesus saying he'll be perfected, uh, the word perfected there is to be completed or done. Jesus has a work to do that needs to be finished, which again brings, brings weight to what he says on the cross when he says, it is finished, now I'm done. So he, he, Herod can't stop him until he's done his work, and part of his work is to suffer under Roman crucifixion. Again, going back to chapter 12, some of us will be persecuted, and that's part of the work. Um, He says it cannot, uh, (laughs) Herod won't and even cannot stop the work that God's doing through Jesus Christ. God will protect him to the degree he needs to protect him. Yes, there's evil in the world, but there's also a mission that God's put Jesus on that the enemy can't stop. So there's things going on with the kingdom of God that are unhinderable by evil. And it says, cannot be that a prophet or in the Greek cannot allow the prophetic one Jesus uses this as a chance to give a prophetic word, third day, perfection, but he also announces that he's the prophet saying it. Do you guys catch that? So in Matthew, Jesus is presented as a king, right? In Mark, you could argue he's presented as our high priest, and Peter writes accordingly. In Luke, he's he's presented as prophet. And those are roles that in Old Testament law do not get united in one human being. But when you look at these three Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, they present Jesus as king, priest, and prophet, all as the same person. And so he becomes then the Messiah in this statement too. Um, There is a a light in the context of suffering that Jesus points to, and he's even saying he's going to lead the way there. This is all in God's timing. Herod just doesn't matter. That takes away all what-if fears, That they are so intense about, but the government said so. And Jesus' response is, but the government isn't the kingdom of God. And I'm going to do the kingdom of God before I do government. And they're like, well, what about taxes later on? He's like, pay whatever taxes they want. We're going to follow every law we can that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. But when they start making laws that impinge on the kingdom of God, it's a very clear choice for us. Kingdom of God wins. And the government just doesn't matter. Who cares? They don't have that authority. So Jesus doesn't ask, they don't have that authority unless we give it to them. Jesus doesn't ask followers to be persecuted in chapter 12 without leading the way to it in chapter 13. He's never asked his followers to do anything he hasn't done first. I like that in a leader. I want to follow a leader that's willing to go in first. And he does. Verse 34 Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Anytime you see a name repeated, it's a it's a affection, love, and endearment. Oh, Martha, Martha. Oh, Peter, Peter. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's a love. His response to all this hate and fear is love. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. You're just... Mm -hmm. See, verse 35, your house has left you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus loves Jerusalem despite her crimes and her sin. And he still loves her today. God's heart is to shelter and help and protect despite sin but to allow the sin, the free will of this world to happen for a season so that we can have eternity with people that choose the good on their own will and on their own accord. And God's will is for everyone to gather under his wings. What does God want? How does God allow evil? God wants his will isn't to allow evil. His will is that people choose the good and come under him. So he he, he does answer the question. The heart of God, though, is being denied by the—and there is suffering due to the human flesh and sin. Children often want more sugar than they need. A lot of times they do. I often want more sugar than we need. Why blame the kids? But does that mean a good parent would give their kids sugar all day, all the time, just to rot their teeth out? Because the evil of the dentist is worse than the evil of being denied candy. I mean, this is a simple equation. There's evil on that earth, but the greater evil is to not have people choosing their way into heaven. I know, that's kind of funny to the chickens. They like the hen reference. By the way, that means they're laying an egg right now. No foxes around. See, your house is left to you desolate. You guys built this house of hypocrisy, and it's desolate. And we've seen this in the church over 2000 years, humans building the church up into something that it's not. They build a tree when it should be a bush. We've seen the church be loaded with leaven and corruption, growing into something unnatural, making one woman make a hundred loaves, right? And we've seen it puffed up into something that's corrupt and not okay, And God's desire is not that. His desire is something very different and his heart is something indifferent. What he wants is for his people to gather and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, exalting and glorifying Jesus, doing exactly what that bent over woman did when she was healed. So when you're healed, to exalt and lift up the name of Jesus with your whole heart, soul, and mind, that's what he wants. And it's, it's nothing more and nothing less than just that. So we end on this prophetic word, the conditions of Jesus's return, that Jerusalem will rise up and bless him. By the way, that's starting to happen. If you talk to any Jewish, uh, like m- like Messianic Jew ministry, they're doubling and tripling in the last few years. There is a massive shift back to Jesus Christ, even amongst the Jews, happening as in our lifetime right now. It's kind of exciting. Spiritual deadness until that starts to happen, and as that starts to happen, they come to life as a people. As that starts to happen, Israel will take center stage. Oh, wait, that's happening right now, right? As they return to Jesus on percentages more and more and more, the Jewish people will become more of a light again as they were 3,000 years ago. They will show the world what a nation of God starts to look like. God will grant back to them the kingdom at the end. So if you wipe out Israel, all these promises go away. Romans 11, we'll end on this cross-reference, for i would not brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery i don't want you to be ignorant of this either know this know this before you know anything lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to israel until the fullness of the gentiles comes in until the gentiles hear the gospel the jews will be blind to jesus christ that's part of the plan and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and, he, and, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. What's gonna happen with evil? Evil will be destroyed. But before that final judgment happens, we're gonna see a massive shift back to Jesus Christ and goodness on this planet, mm-hmm. uh, which is exciting to see. So again, a whole chapter on suffering. I hope it was a blessing. I hope it clarified things. I hope it dug up some old wounds helped you think about some of those wounds because this is the counseling of the bible towards some of those things understand what they are understand the nature of what they are and understand that god doesn't want that evil in your life he wants it gone he wants to help you stand up straight again and pull it away so that's what we pray for let's pray dear lord we love your word and we love what you have thank you for tough topics because if we avoid them they're still there they're still hidden And Lord, help us to bring every evil to the light where it can't endure very long. And Lord, help us to not hide sin in our church. Help us to not try to build our church into a tree when it should be a bush. Lord, help uh, evil to not have welcome here. Lord, and we, we just, we see how you dealt with hypocrites and unclean spirits, and we don't wanna be ungraceful and unwelcoming people, but we also don't wanna welcome sin people that pridefully lifted up like a banner. So Lord, help us to just be your people. Help us that to be enough. Help goodness and righteousness to endure in our hearts. Lord, I pray for each person in this room. May your Holy Spirit be on them, but even more so, may your Holy Spirit be in them. And may the Holy Spirit purge out any unclean way from their hearts. May they go forward this week with this word in their hearts, that they know what you say about evil. And as they go into their workplaces on Monday and they have six days to do work, um, Lord, that they labor and they labor for you. And Lord, we'll come back next week and we'll gather again in your name faithfully until the end of days as you told us to. So Lord, bless this time, bless the fellowship. We pray for a blessing on the food upstairs. May it just be a blessing to each person and may we fill ourselves physically while spiritually we fill ourselves with the company of the saints. Lord, may each word out of our mouth be one that edifies and builds each other up. May we leave here encouraged, strengthened, and emboldened to stand on your name just like you did before us. In Jesus' name, amen.